Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, it's 2021. Finally, what's going on? Uh, not too much, Steve. Looking forward to our conversation today, as always. Awesome. Good to hear. Everything's going great here, except our dog, Willie, um, tried to get over-aggressive in eating and broke some plates and dishes. But besides that, it's all good. Are you eating right now, Steve? Kind of sounds like I hear a sandwich. No, I am not. But, you know, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe it's a uh, health check mic problem. Anyways, so let's jump into today's topic, which is a new year, which means Healthier we'll talk sandwiches. a little... What? I said it means healthier sandwiches. New Year, That's people are making resolutions. We're trying to change for the better. Right. And that's what this podcast is all going to be all about, how to change, how to make improvements, how to decide what to do. Um, let's dive into it. Uh, yeah, it's good that we're talking about this. I think that there has been uh, quite a bit of focus on habits and habit development over the last decade, really powered by two books, at least in my mind. It's The Power of Habit by Chuck Duhigg, and then more recently, Atomic Habits by James Clare. And those books both do a wonderful job mapping out the basic cycle of uh, ingraining a new habit, which is trigger behavior reward. So something calls you to do the thing, you do it, and then you get a reward. I think that 90% of our listeners probably understand that cycle. But my guess is 90% still struggle to make hard changes. So what we want to do is try to go a level deeper and discuss where the hang-up and friction points are and what to do about them. Yeah. And, you know, I think another important thing on here is that habits are great and and make life a lot easier um, in a lot of degrees. But some of the changes you, w- you want to make aren't going to be normal or habitual, right? They're going to be things that you have to choose to figure out how to do and don't get just get ingrained uh, into your daily or even weekly cycle. So I think it's worth kind of breaking apart not only the, we'll call it simple things that we can make habitual, but also the things that maybe how do we change with more infrequent activities that um, you know also are, are very important in our life. Yeah. All right. Well, where should we dive in? Good question. Well, let's let's start maybe uh, personally, and then we can expand out from there and think about something that we are looking forward to changing in our own lives uh, going forward. All right, that sounds good. So I'll I'll start us off, and um, I guess I'll start us off with my own uh, fitness routine. So if anybody knows me, they know that I can coach other people really well. But when it comes to myself, I tend to revert to my hard-headedness and tend to think of myself still in the same lens that I did when I was a high school or college student and could literally hop out the door and do whatever I wanted exercise-wise you know, recover and be okay the next day. So my habit isn't or my change isn't 
how to start the exercise habit. It's all actually how to, let's say, keep it in a place where it is sustainable over the entirety of the year instead of what has occurred recently, which is pretty good for a month or two, you know, strain my calf or whatever other injury because I tried to do too much too soon and then have to modify and do cross training or something else for a month before getting back into that cycle. So here's a question for you. And and this will apply broadly too. Would you consider this something that you really care deeply about? Exercise habits? Yes. Yeah. And being healthy and being able to run consistently? 100%. So why not hire a coach? Um, good question, because I don't think I would follow the guidelines. Mm. So like a little too much ego, like I'm this well known coach, what do I need a coach for? Or your habit, energy and inertia is so strong towards pushing that the coach would try to hold you back and you just wouldn't listen. Uh, probably I wouldn't listen in the sense that if you look at most of my exercise habits, well, it's twofold. It's what I do kind of on my own. And then more important, I think, and where I get myself into trouble is what I do when I'm with my college athletes. Mm. So it's it's like setting in, in the way I framed it and the way I've looked at change is setting boundaries on what I'm doing there and what my expectations are there. Because where I get myself into trouble is sitting there being like, oh, you know what? you know, this person's doing a nine mile run or this person's doing a, you know, a five mile tempo run at this pace. And, you know, they might need some help or like, I want to watch this workout. So I'm just going to hop in, even though I probably shouldn't. Mm. Right. And why not set a strict boundary where you, your running and your physical practice is separate from your coaching. And then you can hop on a bike if you want to join someone for a tempo run. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, harder to do that, I think, with the lifestyle I have set up in the sense that most of my exercise generally has to kind of occur in the morning. Yeah, I thought you might say that. So it's a timing issue. So it's a timing issue. And then once it gets into the... Once we get into the summer, it's a, it's like if you don't run in the morning, you're kind of done for. In so, so, is, so there's basically no way for you to run consistently without running during practice. But running during practice means that you're not coaching during practice. Is that right? Um, yeah, to a degree. So like what I do is I plan, you know, my quote unquote off days around some hard workouts that I want to watch, obviously, or I'll do something like warm up and cool down with the team. Right. And then watch the the specific workout. But if you warm up with, you know, some athletes, sometimes it's tempting to just be like, oh, you know what, I'll just watch it by like running this loop. So I get to see, for two miles, all of it, instead of standing at the, you know, start and finish line and watching you come by every 10 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. And then the only thing I'd really challenge you on, and sorry, listeners, I didn't mean to make this like a a coaching session here with Steve, but do you really not have 35 minutes before or after practice that you could just protect for yourself to run? Because you run pretty fast. You can run a fair amount in 35 minutes. Yeah. Generally not now that I'm commuting from far. Okay. Or further, because it's uh, we generally have have meetings uh, after practice for uh, coaching, and then beforehand it would mean getting up at like five thirty in the morning. 
Right. And then for the summer, a treadmill, it just is the treadmill. You'd rather not run at all. Yeah. I hate treadmills. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I can suck it up if I'm training for something, but if I'm not training for something, I won't get on it. And I don't want to be training for something. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that what I'm hearing you say is that your biggest issue is just the intellectual part of your brain that says that I shouldn't jump in this workout gets overpowered by the lizard part of your brain that says, I used to be a 401 miler. I can do this. I'll get a great workout in. I'll be a better coach because I'll be shoulder to shoulder with my runner and I'll go home feeling great after a nine mile tempo run. And then in reality, once every month or two, you end up going home pissed off because your Achilles is swollen and you won't be able to run for another month. Nailed it. Yeah. So in, if you were just to do the warm up in the cool down, would that suffice from, a, from an intellectual standpoint? Would that be enough running for you? Um, not in totality. So that's why my kind of it, my solution is uh, being very defined on what workouts I will quote unquote do and what workouts I won't. Because to me, the issue is satisfying um, is giving enough satisfaction for like performing to a, a level that I feel comfortable with, um, but. Not so much that I have a pr- have a likelihood of getting injured, and not so little that like it doesn't satisfy things. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, the only thing that I would say there is, I'd still come back to if you've got the workouts for the team written in advance, and you hired a coach or even a consultant just to basically make the hard decision for you and say, hey, which of these is responsible to do. It might not be a bad idea, especially if you can find someone that has worked with a lot of post-elite runners that are no longer in their prime, but still sometimes have the brain of being in their prime. So it's a thought. And and we've gotten really deep on this particular situation. What I'm pulling out is that it can be very helpful to bring an objective lens to behavior change, but it is very hard to bring an objective lens to behavior change when you're in the moment and the thing is calling you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's the kind of issue in a whole. And I think, I mean, you're right. A coach would help in that situation. Um, But I think, you know, you're like coach for the sole purpose of holding you back and like protecting you from yourself. Right. Exactly. Which is honestly, most of the time when you're working with elites, either way, that's what you're doing. Oh, totally. My, my, and I'm, I'm so far from elite, but my strength coach, I don't think he's ever told me to lift more weight or do more reps ever. So it's like every, all of my progress is credited to him holding me back and keeping me healthy enough to train consistently. So I know this isn't what it's about, but that's, it's an interesting thing that I think is worth, um, you know, marking here is that if you think of, I hate to pick on them, but your old school football coach, right? My, they're, they're, they're doing not your specific. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just like an old school football coach. Yeah. Like their idea is to do the opposite, right? right? They think in their head that my job is to push them forward where most of the time with and it doesn't have, you know, I used elite. Well, high school not- is not the best example because in high school, you have so much testosterone that you can just destroy yourself and recover, right? Yeah, but uh, after, but it can also like... It's not a good habit. 
yeah, it's not a good habit. And it also can lead to, you know, a burnout from having to like go to the well so many times, maybe not physically, but psychologically. But it's, it's interesting though, right? Because like, that's kind of the norm when the norm probably for anybody who has an, you know, any innate drive is to do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good point. Um, and like, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Small steps lead to big gains and just it's so much better to be consistent. Like in my own journey in strength training, it's actually funny we're having this conversation now. So just yesterday, I was an idiot and I was rushed and I didn't warm up appropriately and I strained my low back. So I can no longer say I've been training consistently for 18 months. But prior to yesterday, I'd been training consistently for 18 months. And by far, I've made the biggest gains in strength, mobility, just my health, how I feel like in daily life, carrying stuff, going up and down the stairs, chasing Theo. But if I look back, none of those workouts would have excited me. Like every single workout would have been like, wait, like only two sets, not six? Or like, wait a minute, you want me to stop at RPE seven when I have three more in the tank for a single? Why not bump the weight by 30 pounds? And the unsexiness of the daily workouts has led to the sexy results of the year and a half of consistent training. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like human nature in, encapsulated there is that if you can zoom out far enough and realize long-term benefits, then it's a no-brainer to have the you know, daily consistency to, to pay off. But, uh, but most of the time, we can't do that. Right. And it's so hard to stop one or two or even three reps short when you're feeling really good in the moment. And especially with a goal like fitness or exercise, because you want to keep pushing because you're feeling good. You've got those endorphins going. And it's just really like the, you think, like, I want to get a good workout. But a good workout usually means that, at least for me, that you don't really feel like you pushed yourself. Like if there's a line where you're pushing yourself, I want to get like right below the line 95% of the time, but do that five days a week without getting injured. So it's interesting there because, you know, you mentioned endorphins and endorphins essentially act as motivators, right? Or a kind of thing that, that allow us to do very difficult things and, and keep us to do doing difficult things because it makes the difficult you know, um, enjoyable to a degree. It's running would suck without like some sort of endorphins, you know? Um, but it's interesting there because the, at a point they go from like helping and motivating through difficulty to blinding us to reality. Right. And I think what you're getting at there is something, whether it's lifting, whether it's, you know, um, rep number 10 of 400 meter repeats. Yep is you can blind yourself when things are going so well to thinking like, oh, like the goal is to push forward. And I think, you know, we're going way off topic here, but it's interesting. And it's something that I I tweeted about last week, I believe, is that if you look at classes, group exercise classes that are designed to enhance that endorphin, like we'll take Soul Cycle for example, like, you're almost intentionally blinding people so that they have a propensity to overwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And in 
and that's why those classes are actually pretty effective because you get that glow. But that's also why a lot of people will go really hard for a month or two and then burn out. Right. Because over the long haul, your body adapts, your mind adapts, that endorphin increase isn't isn't the same you know i'll myself as example when i was first starting running i'd get like that feel good endorphin off of going for a five mile easy run right because that was yeah. a long way for me yeah man oh man it's like a draw it's a the, it's the same analogy because it's a lot of the same chemicals like opiates endorphins but you're just chasing your first high and wow dude metaphor alert we did it sorry if you've made it this far with us but here's a gem it is no different than chasing your first high and like getting addicted to that feeling, but it takes more and more and more to get that same level of high. And with drugs, you get really sick and eventually like could lose your life. And with fitness, you tend to exercise yourself to getting injured, but you end up hurt both ways by chasing a first high that came very easily. Which, you know, so you got a microdose. Yeah, it is exactly your fitness. I'm, I'm not for microdosing LSD or anything like that. I don't know enough about it. Yeah. And what I'd add there as well is that you also have to like be okay and get used to not like enjoying the activity for itself, not necessarily for the endorphin release. Right. And that brings us to something that is so important for making behavior change that sticks, which is the people or the community that you do it with and the like the process mindset and we talk about this so often but you mentioned earlier seeing it as the long game but really enjoying like the challenge of holding yourself back cuz anyone can push themselves really hard but like really enjoying like you know I'm going to be zen like Brad and Steve told me to on the podcast and just hold myself back and be patient and that becomes the challenge and then the community of people is so important because if you're showing up to do something with people, which has been very hard, as we all know, over the last year because of COVID, um, you, it's a whole other reason to be doing what you're doing and to be there besides just getting that thrill. And that's where I think the fitness classes are really good is they bring people together. But it's really hard to get, to, to, to get people to hold back together because people can also push too hard together. Yeah, you know, this is this is interesting and fascinating because I think, you know, you said something in there, it's hard to hold back. And often we glorify pushing to the well, like going to the point of, of when you're puking or throwing up yeah. as the tough thing. But in reality, that's relatively simple, right? I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. So let's 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 like give appropriate perspective. So for the driven pusher, elite athlete, elite musician entrepreneur, executive, pushing really, really hard to the point of overwork, injury, illness, burnout is the easy thing. For the totally unhealthy person that is dying to lose 40 pounds, that has a big goal every year but can't get off the couch, pushing yourself is the hard thing. Yeah. So yeah. Good, good context there. But like for the driven person... Pushing yourself to that point is relatively easy. I mean, you or I, Brad, regardless of our shape, like could go out and go to the track and destroy ourselves in a workout until the point where like laying on the ground. No, like, no, no. I have to be in a squat rack these days. You haven't seen me in person in a long time. If I, I tried to keep up with Caitlin, and Caitlin's a good runner, but you know, she's running like eight minute, eight thirty miles, and my hip was like 
blown after two minutes. So I am not destroying myself at the track. But I, I, I get what you're saying. I just don't want people that like live here in Asheville to be like, you're full of shit, Brad. Like you can't run a mile anymore. But in, in, a, in our chosen athletic pursuit of the moment, we could destroy ourselves very easily. Yes. That, that is... Sorry. I don't want to give you any more credit. We, we should give Caitlin the credit for running in the Stolberg family. She's, she's holding it down where Brad is moved to lifting with uh, garbage cans. Not true. Um, we got a squat rack. 2021, man. Things are looking up. Oh, man. For those, for those who have not seen it, I suggest you head over to the Growth Equation Instagram page if you want to see Brad using his uh, garbage can. Not mine. The city's rack. garbage cans. Oh, the I'm a socialist, man. <laughs> um, the city's garbage cans to squat off of, which I've been advised to say you shouldn't try at home because apparently there can be some pretty epic fails. I don't think I squat enough weight where I have to worry about the weight breaking through the garbage can. Good, good point. So if you're like Brad or even more like me, you can squat using garbage cans. If, if you have a high degree of strength, do not. Do not. We do not advise that. Hey, are you saying I don't have a high degree of strength? I, I didn't say that. You said that you were okay using the garbage can. So maybe that, that's telling you something uh, there right there. I have a very medium degree of strength. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's all relative, my friend. Yeah. All relative. Uh, where were we? Okay, so we were talking about, yeah, holding yourself back versus pushing. And bringing it broad and applicable to everyone, uh, a huge trap with change is that we try to be heroic and we try to do too much too soon and we blow ourselves out. So I think that to summarize where we've been so far, it's really hard to take consistent small steps, not because the small steps are hard, but because holding oneself back is hard. The best way to do it is to make an intellectual plan. But in the moment when you're feeling good, it is still extremely challenging to hold back. Yep. So we talked about one method for holding back, which is certainly the method I use in my own fitness endeavor, which is having a coach. So I know plenty about physical movement and I could very easily coach most people with strength goals that are similar to mine, but I know I can't coach myself because I'll push too hard. So I pay a coach. And it's not that I don't learn anything from him, but... I'm not doing fancy stuff. I'm squatting, I'm bench pressing, I'm deadlifting, I'm doing some single arm, single leg work. But his real goal is to keep me in check. So if you can't hire a coach, either because financially you don't want to invest in that area, there's not a coach in your field, then the question becomes, how do you self-coach through change? That's a good question. Because that's what it is. And I think like that's an important framing. And I hadn't thought of it until now that we're getting to is like you need to maybe shift the lens to self-coaching because when you're self-coaching, it takes you out of... It, it, like, it provides a degree of objectivity. So it's like, okay, I want to make this change. I'm, if I can't hire a coach, then I need to coach myself to do it. And just that framing, I think, like coach myself probably helps people make wiser decisions. If there's psychologists listening, it'd be a fascinating study to examine the effect of approaching something as coaching yourself versus just doing it. You know, it's it reminds me of work we've talked a lot about which is creating that um that distance. Yeah, self-distancing. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Yep. So like if you frame yourself 
as Coach Brad or Coach Steve, you know, it creates this distance that allows your mind to kind of handle it a little bit better and see things through a a broader perspective instead of the narrow perspective that is who we are when we're doing something that we like or that we're trying to get better at. Yeah, and I think there the other way to do like self distancing, if I'm remembering right, Steve, is the the banner of research that this falls under. And the most popular way to do it is to pretend that a friend or family member is in the exact same situation as you and then give them advice. Right, exactly. So it would be um it would be like, oh, you know, my training partner's hamstrings are really sore and she's considering running two miles intervals hard. What would I tell her? The answer would be don't do it. So then you have to tell yourself not to do it. Maybe maybe it's even uh, writing a training plan as if you're writing one for someone else. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, I think so. But then sticking to it. But then sticking to it. I think that's the, the key part. But literally, you could title it someone else's name if you want to and just have them have similar fitness goals. And how would you write that up? Okay, this is it. And then you've got to figure out a way how to stick to it or hold yourself to it. Yep, I agree. And then... So the sticking to it and holding yourself to it, um, you know, it's hard. I think something to do is to really try to pay attention to what it feels like when you fail. And then in the moment when you have to make the decision, try to embody the feeling of failure. So when people talk about this with individuals that are trying to eat healthier... They often say that when you're reaching for the ice cream, pause for just three seconds and picture what you're going to feel like after you ate the entire quart. Because you did that three months ago and you felt terrible. You felt gross. You couldn't sleep. You had a stomach ache. The next morning you woke up, you were bloated. You couldn't like get out of bed easily. And then feel that really deeply in your body and then decide, do I want to eat the ice cream? For pushing too hard in fitness, I would say it is for you, it's like you're about to hop into a workout and really visualize and try to feel the frustration that you have when you hurt your calf, the car ride home, thinking like, oh, I'm not going to be able to run for a month, all of that, and then decide if you want to hop in the workout. Because the endorphin buzz is immediate. You get that right away. What you don't get right away is the strained calf. Same thing with eating the ice cream. And I think it's the flip side for starting a behavior. So if you really struggle to to get going, then it's like really trying to visualize how good you feel once you've done it. I tweeted earlier um, earlier this week, or I guess now last week, that like, and it's true. If I had to feel motivated to start working out, I would have done twenty three workouts this year, not two hundred thirty. And if I would have had to feel motivated to start writing. I probably wouldn't have written much, if anything at all, because I don't generally feel great when I get going. What keeps me going is I remember how good it feels to have written or to have worked out or to be in the middle of a workout or to be in a writing groove. That was a long rant. No, it's you're spot on. I mean, feelings are drivers, right? Our... our we kind of use them as as motivators or status checks on like what we should do, right? They can push, pull, nudge us towards a direction. And I think what you're getting at there is 
figure out how to use your feelings to your advantage instead of just haphazardly on on what occurs. Yeah, because if exactly we're, if we're if we're just waiting and then we're at at you know we're at their whim, we're at the whim of the endorphins or like that feel good hit of dopamine that we might you know get in wanting to snack on that ice cream or whatever it is. And I think it can also be really help, helpful in communication. And I know a lot of people, when when it comes to making changes, one change I'm hearing a lot about, especially in this day and age, is like thinking twice before you respond on social media or thinking twice before you send the rash email to a colleague that you're upset with. And there, I think it is... You have to override that rush that you get when you're angry and you do something and replace it with how you'll feel four hours later when you're like trying to undo the mess or thinking like, wow, I was way too hard on that colleague and feel that before you hit send. So I guess what we're saying is like maybe the way to bridge intellectual knowing of what to do with like visceral feeling in the long term is you have to feel your way to the long term goal. That didn't make much sense. Let me try again. So we we earlier said the way to make productive change is taking these consistent small steps over the long haul and how intellectually that sounds great, but it's very hard to do. And I think what I'm saying is if the doing is driven by feelings, we have to try to feel the long thing, not the short thing in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean that's it's kind of if you look in the sports psychology literature it's what the use of imagery is all about. Right. Right? You're painting the picture so that you get this sense of feeling and and they tell you to go into you know how the wind feels blowing across your hair or if you're imagining running through you know running a race. Like you're trying to create this atmosphere that like is visceral and feels real. Right, because you want to use that feeling and connect it to whatever the experience is. So, you know, we've come, we've kind of circled around here, but it's kind of interesting that we've kind of arrived at something that is simplistic, but a little bit profound in the sense that creating long-term change is a lot of times like figuring out how to how to make your feelings work with you, and not like putting yourself against them. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I think that, I think that that is a nice tidy bow on this part of the conversation. I think that we should spend a little time touching on trigger behavior reward just to make sure everyone understands that because we, we glossed over it in opening, but I think it's important. And then I think that. We should talk about self-compassion and the importance of what to do when you mess up because everyone trying to make a significant change is going to mess up at some point. Not not over the long haul, but how you handle that mess up determines the long haul. Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a uh, good path forward. Yeah. Um, All right. So trigger behavior award. Again, I mentioned this. I'm just going to gloss over it because... I do think this is really good science. It's been written about to death, but those are good books for anyone that's new to habit change. The basic theory goes that... And I'm going to be quick because my guess is a lot of listeners have heard this. You want something to trigger your habit. So you want to eat more fruit, you should probably put fruit on the counter because then you'll see the apple. 
You want to eat less fruit, you should bury the trigger. So for good habits, you want a very salient trigger. For bad habits, you want a hidden trigger. Then the behavior is either eating the thing or not eating the thing. And then the reward is how good you feel after you've eaten the healthy food or how bad you feel after you ate the unhealthy food. And I think the most important thing to touch on here is there's been a lot of recent research that shows that extrinsic rewards are much less powerful than intrinsic rewards. So what I mean by that is if you say that if I go to the gym, after I go to the gym, I'm going to let myself splurge on watching you know, some, some mindless TV show that I would otherwise not watch, you're much less likely to maintain the exercise habit than if the reward is, I feel really good after I exercise. Or I feel really good during exercise once I get going. So I think that's important to note. There is one other strategy that I want to talk about called temptation bundling that can work somewhat well, which basically says that for really hard things, bundle it with an easy thing. So for a while, um, back when we could go to nice cafes without worrying about COVID, I when I didn't feel like writing, I would go to this really nice cafe and order a fancy like coffee drink. And that got me there to start writing. Um, hence the name temptation bundling. Like you take something that's a temptation and you bundle it with the hard thing and then you do it. Yeah, exactly. And a, a lot of that is what how group exercise works as well, right? Or even teams, right? Y- you know, it's, well, this exercise thing is hard, but I'm going to go spend, you know, an hour of my time with people I enjoy, with people I get to talk to which I'm going to have a social interaction, maybe even grab a coffee or a meal afterwards. And it becomes a lot easier to get out of bed because, you know, you've got this good thing bundled with this difficult thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So is there anything else really to say on trigger behavior reward? Again, we give a super simple example with like healthy versus unhealthy food, but you could apply that to anything. Where you put the workout clothes... For the email or the Twitter response that you don't want to send, um, the trigger not to send it could literally be like a sticky note on your computer that says, do you really want to hit send? And then you just look at it before, and then that makes you pause, and then you decide what to do. Uh, Social media use on your phone. The trigger is the app on your phone. So if you want to use less social media, take the app off your phone. If you want to meditate more, put the meditation app on your phone. Um, if you want to do something every morning, put it next to your toothbrush. So you see it, you think about it. If you don't want to do something, take it away. Uh, behavior is simple enough. And then as we were talking about rewards, the more you can feel into something internal, the more sustainable the behavior will be. No, I think you, uh, you nailed that explanation. Okay. I'll take it. So now let's talk about what to do when you mess up. Self-compassion. The best, you know, I, I think this is this is one of the places where people really go wrong, and I think it it comes back to that whole feeling um, discussion that we had, you know, just previously. Because what can tend to happen is if you mess up, right, then you replace everything or tie everything that you've done to this negative like feeling where you sit there and you go oh my gosh, like I failed, like I'm off the wagon, I didn't get my exercise in, I, you know, um, I ate the bundle, you know, the gallon of ice cream, whatever it is you did, 
now you've like amplified and enhanced that in a negative direction, which then makes you next time you go around almost it, it makes you have this like visceral negative feeling connected to the thing you do so that you almost don't start just so that you don't have to go through that negative feeling or sensation again. Yeah, exactly. And for, um, for when you do like the other thing, I the only other thing I'd add is that there's often like a feeling of guilt and shame that like builds on itself. So it's almost like becomes masochistic. So it's like, you know, again, we'll start in very simple terms. I like drink the second beer. So I might as well drink the third and now I'm feeling guilty and shameful. So I'm going to drink the fourth, fifth and sixth. And if after you drink the second, you can just be like, fuck, I messed up. But hey, that's what people do because it's true. You're a human. Then the guilt shame spiral stops and you don't continue down the road of the negative behavior. Back to our early example of pushing ourselves in athletics. I can't tell you how often um, I see this in people. And it, and maybe this is just because the people that I'm working with, Steve, tend to be like, you know, not pro athletes at all. They're executives, they're entrepreneurs, and the physical activity part is such a small part of part of the work that I do with them. But for those out there that are not athletes, that are not my coaching clients, it is important to note that the reason I focus at all on physical activity is because I really believe that exercise should be a part of your job, whatever your job is. And that could be another interesting conversation for a later time. But in any event, you often hear when amateur athletes get hurt, that like once they overdo it, it's almost like they double down. So they're like, well, f- like crap, like... You know, my my um my elbow's already sore because I went too hard today, so I might as well just try to blast one more set tomorrow. And then they end up hurting themselves worse. And I think it's that same kind of guilt cycle that just builds on itself, which again you can short circuit it by being kind to yourself. You know, I think guilt or any of these negative emotions or feelings that we experience after quote unquote failing or struggling, it, it's almost like it causes you to shrug your shoulders and be like, all right, I've been like pushed off this, this railroad, this train track. So it doesn't matter. I can go crazy. Right. And I've seen that, that same mindset in really good athletes. I've seen that same mindset in students who, you know, struggle on one test. Right. And then it almost gives them this permission to like, up, you know what, like whatever, so I, I think it's really, you know, circling back on this, like this power of feeling, it's making sure that that guilt you feel maybe, or that envy or whatever negative feeling you have, like you can figure out a way how to make it work for you and not like send you off the spiral that gets you off or away from that like habit um, or behavior that you really want to pursue. Yep. Yep. I don't have anything to add. And I think that, um, you know, it's funny. I said I don't have anything to add and here I'm adding something. I talk about often like you have to marry self-compassion with self-discipline. So it's not to say that every time you fail, you should be like, oh, I'm a human. Humans fail. So I guess I'll fail again tomorrow. It's like a firm self-compassion and a firm discipline. So if for basically like the more hard on yourself you're going to be, the more self-compassionate you need to be. Yeah, they have. To, I mean, the way I look at this thing is how do you handle sports where they play back to back games all the time? Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it's like 
yes, like, are you upset at the win? But you have to be able to, like, you know, be compassionate, have some self-compassion, like, maybe watch the film, recognize what didn't go right, but then move on to the next one. You know, um, one of the athletes I worked with from a, a kind of mental strength component was a decathlete. And a dec- decathlon is fascinating because you have 10 events spread out over two days. So five events one day, five events the next. And it's one after another. So you literally go from, I don't know, pole vaulting to running a 1500 meter race. And what's interesting is it's just like playing, you know, back to back games, only it's on a micro you know, level where a lot of times what you see is if you start like getting, you know, letting your mind spiral because, you know, you messed up in this event, well, it carries on to the next and the next and the next. So you really have to be able to like get out of that spiral, be, have a high degree of self-compassion so you can move on and shift your focus to the other thing. Because if not, your focus is going to be stuck behind you. And I think that that's the same thing that occurs when we, fail at behavior behavioral changes is when we don't get up to go exercise for example the next time we're exercising we're thinking behind us our attention is on the thing that we didn't do in the past instead of our attention being on the thing right here in front of us that we can do yeah and i think the same thing applies as just thinking like in relationships and how Like when you're in a fight over something stupid because you're both just tired and everyone in a relationship has that happen, you can just be like, oh, like, well, we were both just tired. That sucks. Like, it happened because we're humans in a relationship. Let's get going. Versus like really beating it to death, going to bed angry, being passive aggressive the next day, spending four days on it when in fact, it should have just been 30 seconds. And again, this isn't to say that there aren't actual problems that require a lot more work, whether it's behavior change, relationships, anything. But I think it's worth really trying to discern what are the small things that are small failures that happen because you're a human living in the world and how can you very quickly just smile at them, put them behind you and then get back on the bandwagon. Exactly. I think, you know, I think that's, it's like, how do you get back on the bandwagon is the whole key to this thing. And I think a lot of times, We're our own worst enemy when it comes to that. Yeah. All right, man. That seems like a pretty good place to wrap today. Um, Yeah, I don't really have much to add to the conversation. Hopefully, we helped you all listeners out there provide a little more context to habit change, behavior change as we start this new year. And... um, getting beyond just trigger behavior reward without leaving it behind. Because obviously, um, that is a really good model, but it fails a lot. So we talked about pushing forward, pushing back the difference between or holding back the difference between intellectual knowing about something taking a long time versus like creating the forward looking feelings in the moment. And then we talked about self compassion for when you fail. Exactly. And listeners, if you have any insights or, you know, want to pass along what you found successful in helping you create some behavioral change, um, don't hesitate to hit us up on social media or you can email us through our newsletter, which if you're signed up, it's easy to reply. All right. www.thegrowtheq.com. 
Um, thanks to everyone for tuning in, and we will catch you with a new episode next Wednesday. Uh, until then, be well. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.